It is good to be in the house of the Lord and to have the opportunity. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. Um, thank you to Pastor Adam for inviting me. Uh, his name starts with an A. That's the type of student he was, okay? So it's, 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 all, it's all good. Um, sorry, do you want a bad academic joke? Just one, just one? Okay. I'm originally from Canada. There's a word that Canadians are famous for. Anybody know it? A. a. Okay, very good. Um, and if you're from Mexico, when you want to say yes, you say C. So Canadians get A's, Mexicans get C's, and Americans are in the middle, so they all get B's. Okay, that's my bad academic joke. It's, it doesn't get any better. Just be thankful you're not my children. You don't have to put up with dad jokes every day. Actually, it's gotten really bad. My, my middle daughter hates my dad jokes more than the other two. But every year now, she gets me a dad joke calendar, one dad joke for every day of the year. It's, it's just once more punishment, I guess. I don't know. All right. Um, as Pastor Adam mentioned, I, I want to talk to us about uh, why we can, in fact, trust uh, the Gospels that we have. Uh, but I want to start I want to start a little differently than I intended to. And I want to start by reading a story from Mark chapter 2. This is one of my favorite encounters in the Gospels, Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 together just really briefly. And I, I mentioned in the 9 o'clock service that uh, I, I find it really astounding that there are people out there who think that the Bible can be boring. Um, I became a Christian at age 17, and everything that I read was just brand new. I grew up in a very non-religious family, and so when I was introduced to the Bible, I, I, all of these stories I'd never heard before. And everything was new and everything was exciting. And if you, if you think back to like the people that hung around Jesus during his ministry, do you think they ever got bored? No, and it's because of stuff like this that we find in Mark chapter 2 that you could have never gotten bored hanging around with Jesus. So I think one of the greatest sins that we can commit against God, I'm exaggerating for the sake of making a point, one of the greatest sins we can commit is making his word boring. Okay? I think it's a tremendous sin if we make the Bible boring. Should never be boring. All right, Mark chapter 2. Fascinating encounter here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered. Again, Jesus was a pretty exciting guy. People wanted to be around him. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. How many of you want to host a dinner party, and all of a sudden your roof caves in because there's guys up there digging through your roof to lower a paralyzed man on a mat? This is exciting stuff. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? If you've thought about it, that's a really, really good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, I challenge you to do this at home. Just try practicing those two phrases and try to figure out which one is easier to say. As it turns out, they're actually both really easy to say. Okay? 
But what's Jesus' point here? If I say, I'll choose you. What's your name? Zachary. If I say to Zachary, Zachary, your sins are forgiven. Can anybody else here ascertain, tell whether or not that has actually happened? No. Because whatever it is that would have happened would have been between him and God. Right? You would have no idea whether his sins have been forgiven or not. But if Zachary was here with a broken leg and he came in on crutches and I said to Zachary, be healed, would you be able to tell whether or not that has happened? Yes, that's the point Jesus is making, right? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and go home? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but it's also a stronger claim. And then he goes on, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. That's a dinner party worth remembering, right? That's a pretty cool thing. Now, I use that story. There's all sorts of things that we could do with that story. Um, but I use it just for one purpose this morning. And that's to ask this question. Why should we believe that that actually happened? That Jesus actually did and said those things. Now, again, there's a lot of people in our society, as Pastor Adam mentioned, that don't take the Bible seriously. They, they think it's just a book written thousands of years ago by a bunch of dummies who didn't know any better. So why should we think that the things recorded in the Gospels actually occurred? Now, why does this question matter, right? Who cares, okay? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Where do I learn about Jesus? In the Bible, right? Particularly the Gospels. If you want to learn about who Jesus was, what he did, what he said, you really don't have any other choice but to go to the Gospels. And so if we are Christians, followers of Christ, little Christs, the only way we can learn about the Christ who we're following is from the Gospels. And if the Gospels are not giving us an accurate picture of who Jesus was, what he did and what he said, then we're building our faith on a lie. Now again, I did not grow up in a Christian family, and so when I was young, I did not take the gospel seriously. I did not take the Bible seriously. I had no reason to. I did have faithful Christian friends who tried to share their faith with me, and I had two of them that would try to answer the questions that I would ask. I was a very snarky atheist when I was in high school. I was not a very nice person. I'm, I'm much nicer now than I used to be. I'm still snarky, but I'm much nicer now than I used to be. I would make life difficult for them. And they would put up with it because they loved me enough to put up with my abuse for the sake of trying to share Jesus with me. So incidentally, side note, if you have snarky friends like that or family members, you never know how much what you're saying is actually impacting them. You have no idea. You may never know. I suspect that some of those friends that I had in high school have no idea what happened the rest of my life and what impact that they made but they made an impact that they just never got to see, okay? So never give up being faithful to Christ and sharing with the people around you that are hard to share with and hard to love because Jesus may just grab a hold of them based on what you shared with them as well, okay? But this morning I want to look at why we should, in fact, trust the Gospels. Now, 
I'm a Christian. I believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. It's the word of God and that it's inerrant. It has no mistakes in anything that it shares with us. Okay? I'm not going to defend that this morning. I'm going to do something much more modest. I'm going to try to contend that the Bible is historically reliable. That the Gospels give us an accurate picture of who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said. Okay? Because if you don't have that historical reliability, well, certainly you can't have an inspired or an inerrant Bible. But for the non-Christian, they really don't need to be convinced that God's word is without error. They need to be convinced that they can trust the story in general. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were at least as reliable as Roman historians like Tacitus and Suetonius. Right? And if they can be trusted to convey accurate history, well, then I can read what it says and I can take that seriously and I can seek to learn from it. Okay. So that's all that I want to do with you this morning. Now, I'm going to walk through. I have the six lines of evidence laid out. I'm going to skip over all of them except for one. At the 9 o'clock service, I did the opposite. I walked through five of them and skipped the one. Okay. So we're going to spend almost all of our time on number four. I'll walk through the other five just really, really briefly. But we're going to zero in and camp out on number four. Well, it's letter D. But number four, letter D, same thing, right? Okay, so six reasons that we can trust the reliability of the Gospels. The first is just that the Gospels claim to contain eyewitness testimony. They claim to tell us what actually happened. Um, if they didn't profess to give us an accurate record, we'd have no reason to think that they give us an accurate record. But they profess to give us an accurate record, okay? So number one, they claim to be eyewitness accounts. Number two, they are early accounts. In the ancient world, uh, information didn't spread the way that it spreads today. Okay? They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have internet. They didn't have Twitter. Uh, they didn't have video cameras. They didn't have audio tapes and so on. Information spread by word of mouth. And eventually, as stories were shared by word of mouth, eventually they would be written down. And this is how history was done in the ancient world. Now, we sometimes think that we're smarter than ancient people. Actually, chances are we're dumber than ancient people. One of the reasons is they had a tremendous capacity for memory. And if you're anything like me, you don't. Okay? They could remember things that were told them very precisely, and they could report them very accurately later. How many of you have read Homer's Odyssey? The Odyssey by Homer, famous Greek play. Really thick book, right? Guess what? People in the ancient, not everybody in the ancient world, but there were people who would recite Homer's Odyssey from memory. How many of you even remember how many books are in Homer's Odyssey? It's 24, if you're wondering, each about 20 pages long. So they're memorizing 480 pages of Homer's Odyssey, and they're able to recite it. Faithful Jewish boys, how many of you know this? Some of you will know this. Faithful Jewish boys in Old Testament times and through into the medieval period would be expected to do what? To memorize the Old Testament. Not just like the book of Obadiah, which only has one chapter, but the entirety of the Old Testament. They had a tremendous capacity for memory. Okay? What that means is that they're able to hear accounts and to remember them and to pass them on accurately. Okay. Something that we struggle to do because we live in an information-saturated age where you can just press the replay button. Okay. Now, why does this matter again? So the early date of the New Testament Gospels, they're written close to the time of the events that they narrate. 
There's not like hundreds of years between them. Now, in the ancient world, again, Roman historians would write the lives of the Caesars, and they'd write about Caesars that had died two, three, four, five hundred years earlier. But they would be able to write accurate historical accounts based on earlier sources and based on stories that had been passed down. Okay? The Gospels are written within a generation or two of the events that they narrate. Okay? Gospel of Mark, probably the earliest, written around 50. Luke and Matthew, around 60. John, much later, around 80. But the point is that they're all written while there are still living eyewitnesses around. Okay. And those living eyewitnesses are able to confirm or to contradict the stories that are written down in the four Gospels that we have. And we don't have anybody contradicting those stories. We have confirmation of them and no contradiction of them. Okay. And what that tells you is that they're written early enough, all of the other living eyewitnesses assent that, yes, this is basically what happened. Okay. So they claim to be eyewitness accounts. They're written early enough to contain eyewitness accounts and to be contradicted if they're not. Number three, or letter C, the church has always recognized the historical reliability of the Gospels. So very early on, you have Christian leaders that recognize there are four Gospel accounts that contain accurate records of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have other accounts that arise later, and the church does not treat them as authoritative because they're later. They're not eyewitness accounts. They're not written down within the lifetime of living eyewitnesses, and so they're not trusted as authoritative records. Okay? Lots more we could say about that, but I want to get to letter D. And uh, this is, now you'll see if you pay really close attention, you'll see like three different titles for this section. It's because I can never quite settle on the right wording for it, okay? But I use internal evidence for letter D and external evidence for letter E to kind of contrast and compare them to one another. But what we're looking at here in letter D, or number four, is evidence from inside the Gospels themselves that confirm their accuracy. Now, that might sound a little weird when you start at it, but it turns out to be serendipitous that you're walking through a chronological study of the Gospels. Because what that means is that you're reading the Gospels horizontally, right? So you're reading, say, the Nativity account in Matthew and in Luke, and you're reading them side by side. What often happens is we read the, the, the Gospels vertically. We start in Matthew 1, we read to Matthew 28, then we start in Mark, go through Mark, Luke, and then John. And we miss what we're going to focus on here because we just read the separate accounts separately. But the Gospels, when you read them side by side in the same passages, you find this intermixing between them where questions that are raised in one are answered in the other and vice versa. Okay? So we're going to look at three types of internal evidence, and this is what I call undesigned coincidences. Okay? And so those three blanks, they're actually listed out for you underneath. Okay? Incidental details, insider knowledge, and intricate convergence. And so I want to spend some time looking at this. And um, it's about eight years ago or so, maybe seven, maybe a little bit less. Uh, I was introduced, this is not original to me. I, I have nothing original, okay? Um, I was taught this, and it honestly revolutionized the way I read the Gospels. Um, I, I see so much more complexity and richness there than I did before. And so my prayer is that this is able to transform the way that you read the Gospels as well. Okay? Um, not that the way I read it before was bad. I just feel like I'm getting a whole lot more out of it now than I did previously. Okay. So let's look first at what we call incidental details. I'm not a detective or a policeman. I'd make a really bad detective, I think. Uh, but detectives, when they're looking for eyewitness accounts of a crime, 
they oftentimes are looking for little things that can confirm that the person really was there. So way back when, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I worked at a bank. I was a teller at a bank. And uh, I was robbed. Okay? Now, in Canada, bank robberies are much more polite than they are down here. I was robbed by a guy who passed a note to me. And he said, I have a knife. Give me your money. That's what the note said. He didn't actually say anything. And then it said, please, at the end of the note, right? So he didn't brandish the knife. He just... The note said, I have a knife, give me your money. So I did what I'm trained to do. I gave him the money, including the die pack, right? The, the bundle of $20 bills with the die pack in it. So I'm like, he's going to be caught red-handed anyways. And so he trundles off with his money, and, and I tell my manager what happened, and they shut the bank down, and they do all that, okay? Now, I tell you this because I was a really bad eyewitness. So the, the police afterwards, they're, they're interviewing me, and they're like, okay, so um, what was the... What was the I forget what the word is. What was the, the criminal, the robber, the thief? The thief, that's the word. What was the thief wearing? And God, I scratched my hand. I'm like, well, he was wearing clothes. <laughs> Tops and bottoms, right? Whoa, sweater, T-shirt, hoodie. Yeah. Something like, what color was his clothes? You could tell the cops getting kind of frustrated with me. I was a horrible eyewitness. I was just so taken aback that I was being robbed that it's like everything else just kind of went blank. And it was just some guy that robbed me. I could not remember anything about his appearance. If he, didn't, if he hadn't been caught, you know, because the dye pack exploded, and so he was, again, literally caught red-handed, they would have never got the guy because I couldn't give a description. I was a terrible eyewitness. I could not give any of those incidental details. You know, did he have a tattoo on his left wrist? Uh, he had a little mole behind his left ear. You know, those are the kinds of things that cops want. Because those are incidental details that confirm that, yes, in fact, you saw the person, you saw the event, you're able to do this. Okay, you're able to give me an accurate account. The Gospels are filled with these kinds of incidental details that establish the presence of the narrator at the events that they're narrating. Okay? I think even of that, that event in Mark chapter 2. How many friends bring the guy? Four, right? How do they get the guy into the room? Through the roof, yeah. You wouldn't forget that one if you'd seen that one, right? They're able to give you these details. Uh, let's look at a different one. This one's in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And again, there's hundreds of these examples. I'm just going to pick on this one uh, for our purposes today. And John chapter 5, it begins, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, now some of you know the rest of the story. What goes on? What happens in the rest of the story? Jesus heals the guy, right? That, that's kind of the, the, the point of the story. The point of the story isn't where it happens or how long the guy had been an invalid. The point of the story is that Jesus heals the dude. But notice all the details that John gives us that are not important to the story, but nonetheless, John gives us these details, okay? What part of Jerusalem is it in? Near the Sheep Gate. Very good, okay? What was the pool? They, they had all of these ritual baths, right? What was the name of the pool? Pool of Bethesda. What was the architectural structure? A portico with five covered colonnades. 
And how long had the dude been paralyzed? 38 years. Okay, now, are any of you into, like, numerology, the importance of numbers in the Bible? I'm just a little bit of a geek. I find that stuff interesting. You know, seven is, like, the number of divine completion and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. What's the, what's the number for, like, a generation? 40. 40. Okay. So if you want, like, a, a, a long period of time that represents roughly a generation, you use the number 40. So if John wants to make the point here, yeah, this guy's like old and he's been paralyzed like his whole life, then he would say the guy had been paralyzed for about 40 years. John doesn't do that. Why doesn't John do that? Because he knows the guy. That's the really cool thing here, right? He knows the guy, and so he knows exactly how long the guy has been paralyzed for. This isn't just your regular middle-aged adult who has been paralyzed for most of his life. This is a guy that John knows, and John knows how long he's been paralyzed, and so he tells us precisely. He doesn't do the good Jewish thing. He does the precise thing instead. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Again, does that matter for the point of the story, how long he's been paralyzed? No. Whether he'd been paralyzed a week, a year, 20 years, 50 years, who cares? Jesus heals him. That's the point of the story. But John gives us these details that we don't need that helped to establish his eyewitness account. Okay, so incidental details all throughout the Bible. Think of, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll get into some of the other stuff, okay? So incidental details. I, I need to be cognizant of time. I have a tendency to just go on and on and on and on. There, oh, okay, okay, okay. All righty. He said it, not me. The second type of internal evidence is what we call insider knowledge. Okay. Uh, now, a lot of skeptics will argue the Gospels weren't written by eyewitnesses who lived close to the time and were not there. They were written like a generation or two generations later by, by people who didn't see the events themselves and didn't know any eyewitnesses either. I think that claim is really tough to maintain in light of the insider knowledge that we find in the Gospels. The writer of all four Gospels, including John, which is the last one written, show a stunning familiarity with the language, the people, and the places of a very narrow slice in time and place. Okay? The Gospels are, are written about, you guys are going there, right, in January. Okay, you're going to this very narrow slice of land on the very eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's like, what, less than 100 miles wide and maybe 300 miles at most it's not even that. It's more like 20 and 100, isn't it? Yeah, it's like 200 square miles in the first century. Now, remember as well, the Jewish temple is destroyed in the year 70, and the Jewish people are dispersed. And so the places that are recorded in the Gospels, most of them are no longer there by the end of the first century. Some of them are. There's a final revolt in about the year 140, and after that, like Rome just wipes them all out, and there's no Judea left. So by the middle of the second century, these places aren't here at all anymore. But what we find is that there's a striking knowledge of the words, the places, and the people that are appropriate in first century Palestine. So let's use a couple of examples, okay? Um, how many of you are familiar with Oklahoma Baptist University to some degree? All right. Oh, wow. Very good. Okay. So I'm going to pick on you guys in the back there, okay? Uh, well, middle back, you know what I mean, okay? If I say I'm going to the rock, where am I going? To the gym, I'm going to work out, right? 
Very good. Now, those of you who have no knowledge of OBU, does that make any sense to you? No, the rock, workout, what? Okay, it's the recreational, sorry, go back one. One slide, there we go, yeah, the recreation and wellness center, okay? So it's the gym, that's where you go to work out, okay? If you don't know OBU, you don't know that. Okay? I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Any of you guys been to Edmonton? Hey, wow, did you go in January? All times of the year. Wow, you're like the only person I met in, in Oklahoma that has. Okay, fantastic. Generally speaking, though, if you go to Edmonton, don't go in January. Go in like June, July um, when it's thawed out a little bit, okay? Now, if I say in Edmonton that I'm going to the mall, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, the rest of you, do you know what I'm talking about? Don't have a clue, okay? Edmonton's a city of about a million people. It's got lots of malls. Nonetheless, somebody who's familiar with Edmonton, if I say I'm going to the mall, where am I going? Biggest mall in the world. Very good. Do you remember the name? Don't remember the name, but I've been to that water park. Been to that water park. Very good. Okay, it's, it's West Edmonton Mall. Okay, so West Edmonton Mall, when it was built, largest mall in the world. It's now second. Sorry. Um, but still has the largest indoor water park in the world. Okay? And so if an Edmontonian says, I'm going to the mall, everybody knows where you're going. But if, you, if you're not familiar with Edmonton, it, it again, it just sounds like gibberish. Okay? Incidentally, look at that red water slide. Isn't that cool? At the very start of it, you, you like stand here, and then the bottom drops out under your feet. And you just plummet straight down, and then you go in a loop around. My middle daughter got stuck in the middle. <laughs> so, <laughs> they actually have an escape hatch there, so if somebody gets stuck in the middle, they have a worker that climbs up and opens that escape hatch, and let's say it's so embarrassing when that happens to you. We had a riot. It was great fun. It's a great water park. It's a really good water park, and it's warm. You can go there in January, and it's 20 below outside, and you can go to the water park. It's fantastic, okay? So that's the mall. Um, okay, the sea. Think of the area, right, that you're going to in January, and if you're not from Palestine, if somebody says, oh, let's go to the sea, what would you think they are talking about? Okay, you guys know too much. You would think it's the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea, maybe. Or, I mean, which is the biggest sea in the vicinity? The Mediterranean Sea. I mean, it's like honking huge, right? The Dead Sea is pretty big as well. And it's also kind of unique, right? Because, like, you float. I was told if you swim in the Dead Sea, don't swim face down because you'll drown. Because you can't turn yourself over. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I've been told that. Okay. But in the Gospels... Uh, especially in the three synoptic gospels, whenever you find references to the sea, they went to the sea, they're not talking about the Mediterranean or the Dead Sea, they are in fact talking about the Sea of Galilee, which isn't even a sea anymore, we call it a lake, because it's really not very big. But it's where Jesus did most of his ministry, was in the vicinity surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And so when the gospel writers refer to the sea, their listeners or their readers knew immediately what they were talking about. They were talking about the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus hung out. But if you're a Jew living in Alexandria, Egypt, and somebody references the sea, you're not going to be thinking Sea of Galilee. You're going to be thinking Mediterranean Sea. So again, this is a sign that the gospel writers are familiar with the insider knowledge of the people and the places of that time and that place. They're not outsiders. They're insiders, okay? Next slide. Let's look at names. Now, my name is Tawa. 
Have any of you met a Tawa before? No, you're not liable to either. Although I was very disappointed, depressed, it really crushed me. Um, my daughter found online, there's another Tawa Anderson in California. I thought it was unique, but I wasn't. Although I'm actually kind of afraid that they've maybe just stolen my identity. <laughs> I don't know. Very unusual name, right? It's never been on the top 10 names anywhere, any place, any time. But there are names that wax and wane in popularity. They can be popular at this time or popular in this place. Um, I've got a niece called Sophie. How many of you know a Sophie? It's one of the most popular girls' names. Okay. But go back 100, 150 years, and there weren't very many Sophies running around. It was not a popular name. Okay. Uh, I pastored in a Chinese church in Canada for seven years, and Chinese Canadians, when they gave their kids English names, one of the most popular girls' names was Winnie. Short for Winifred, okay? uh, but Winnie. So we had, we had four Winnies in our little church of like 60 people. I didn't know a single Winnie outside of that Chinese-Canadian context. It was like a subculture within the broader culture. Okay? So again, different cultures, different geographical regions have different popularities of names. Now, again, I think this is interesting. Oh, did I skip this one? I'll come back to this one. Go to the next slide for me. There we go. There's the names. Okay. So compare popular Jewish names in Egypt versus Palestine in the first century, okay? Now, you might ask, how do they get this, right? They can't interview the people. You do it by the resources you have available, which is basically uh, writings and inscriptions that we still have. And from those writings and inscriptions, you can find the most popular guys' names amongst Jews in Egypt versus Jews in Palestine. And as you can see, Joseph and Eleazar, or Lazarus, are on both lists, right? They're both in the top three in Egypt and in Palestine. Meanwhile, in Egypt, they really liked Sabbatius. So lots of little savvies running around, virtually none in Palestine. Meanwhile, and you could probably guess this just from reading your New Testament gospel, the most popular Jewish boy's name in Palestine in the first century was Simon. Now, how could you figure that out? You could figure that out by saying, well, you know, whenever you run across a Simon in the New Testament, there's always another descriptor. It's what we call a disambiguator, to disambiguate the name from one another. So think of the Simons that you know in the New Testament. You've got Simon, Simon Peter, good. Simon the Zealot, good. Sorry? You've got Simon the Sorcerer. You've got Simon of Cyrene. But every time you run into a Simon, you have the Simon differentiated from the other Simons because there's a lot of them. If you're running in Egypt, you don't need to do that. There might be one Simon amongst them. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So Simon, the most popular Jewish boy's name in first century Palestine, and it also turns out to be one of the most common names you run across in the Gospels. What that tells you again is that the Gospel writers knew the time and the place that they're writing about. They're not making this stuff up. Because if you make this stuff up, you don't give them the right names because you don't know what the right names would be. Incidentally, any guesses? What was the most popular Jewish girl's name in first century Palestine? Mary, okay? Because again, anytime you run into a Mary, what do you find? 
disambiguation. You got Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Joseph, is it? Yeah, okay. See, again, you find these Marys, Mary and Martha, good. Okay, you find these Marys differentiated from one another. You very rarely just have them referred to as Mary. Interesting, right? Okay, we'll go back a slide now, and I'll pick up what I missed. Uh, the geographic locations is another thing that we find, okay? You find Jesus going from town to town to town to town in first century Palestine. And you find him in big centers like Jerusalem, but you also find him in little itty-bitty towns like Bethsaida and Emmaus and Nazareth. Nazareth, they think, might have been a town of like 300 people in the first century. Okay? So not a huge place. But you find Jesus' references going there. Now this is kind of like Oklahoma has all sorts of little towns, right? And, I, and I've unfortunately got a, a map not from your part of Oklahoma, but from around my part of Oklahoma. There's Shawnee in the very top left, what's left of it now, right? But then you've got like Earlsboro and Maud. Earlsboro is like almost a ghost town, right? But then you've got, this is my, my favorite, okay? Right there, you've got Bowlegs, Oklahoma. I love it. Just a great name, Bowlegs, right? You blink and you miss it. So how many of you knew there was a town called Bowlegs, Oklahoma? Oh, wow. You could, you, this is a smart group. Okay. Um, if somebody was not from Oklahoma, would you expect them to know that? No. Okay. Now, again, what this tells you is that the gospel writers knew the geography of first century Palestine. They knew the names of the towns where Jesus would have traveled. This, again, gives you a clue. They're not making this stuff up. They're recording things that they really saw, places that they really went together. Okay, we've got to slip forward a couple of slides, and we'll look at the third aspect, uh, what I call intricate convergence. This is what many people call undesigned coincidences proper, uh, but this, I think, is the most uh, emphatic aspect of internal evidence. The Gospels unexpectedly and complexly agree with one another in a fashion that you cannot make up and that demonstrates that each is recording an actually witnessed event. So again, in many of these cases, one Gospel passage is going to raise a question that that Gospel writer never answers. But you'll find the answer to the question in a different Gospel, sometimes in an entirely different passage, and vice versa. Okay, so I want to look at a couple of examples of this. But before we look at biblical examples, I'll give you an example from the Anderson house. Okay? So imagine that we have four people come to our house for Sunday dinner after church on, uh, we'll, we'll just say it's Sunday, October the 11th. Okay? And each of these four people writes their account of dinner at our house. The first one, Matthew, shares that uh, Dr. Anderson and his wife and all three of their kids were, were dressed up in fine clothes. They were dressed in suits and dresses and that each of them prayed a lengthy prayer of thanksgiving before the meal. Now, Matthew will leave you wondering why we were dressed so formally and why these long prayers before the meal. So the second student, Mark, writes that the meal consisted of roasted turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing and green bean casserole and pumpkin pie. Now, Mark been to our house before, and he knows that usually on Sundays you just have waffles, right? So Mark leaves you wondering, why such an extravagant meal? The third student, Luke, talks about playing games after dinner and the Andersons all sharing stories about growing up in Canada and how different Oklahoma is than Canada was. Now Luke leaves you wondering, what does Canada have to do with this? Why are they talking about Canada today? The fourth student, John, doesn't say anything about what we wore or what we ate or what we did after dinner, 
But John just mentions offhand that Canadian Thanksgiving falls on the second Sunday in October. Neatly answering the questions raised by the other three accounts. Why are they dressed up? Why the fancy meal? Why the reminiscences about Canada? It's Thanksgiving. It's Canadian Thanksgiving. Month and a half early, granted, but it's Thanksgiving. So John answers the questions raised by the others. But it's only by reading all four accounts that you can get the whole picture. So let's look then at a couple of biblical examples. And there's hundreds of them. Uh, We'll probably have to skip one or two. But uh, but, yeah, my favorite short one is John and James. This is what I call Sons of Thunder. So the the most interesting thing I think about this entire sermon is the title. I love the title of this sermon. So if you caught the title, this is where Sons of Thunder comes from. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus appoints 12 disciples. You have a couple of Simons in there, right? And they're differentiated from one another. And so if you start in verses 16 to 17, we read this. These are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And then a whole bunch of others that we'll just ignore. Okay. So Mark tells us that Jesus gave this nickname for Simon Peter. And he gave a nickname for John and James, the two sons of Zebedee. And their nickname is... Sons of thunder. Now, here's my challenge to you. Read the rest of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. And tell me, why on earth does Jesus call them sons of thunder? And I promise you, you will not find an answer to that question in the Gospel of Mark. You'll have no clue. To find why he gives them the nickname, you have to go somewhere else. Where do you have to go? Luke. Okay, Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, you have this fun little story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and they're traveling through some area to get there. And there's a particular village that isn't very welcoming. They tell Jesus, don't come here, we don't want you. And so we read in verse 54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Like I told you guys, the Bible is not boring. Okay. All right, why are they called sons of thunder? They've got a bit of a temper issue, right? These guys, they wouldn't roll out the red carpet. Let's destroy them, Jesus. Now, read the rest of the Gospel of Luke and tell me the nickname Jesus gives them. And I promise you, you will not find it. Who gives us the nickname? Mark, who gives us the reason for the nickname? Luke. Isn't that cool? Again, you can't make this stuff up, right? It just fits together. And notice the passage in Luke has nothing to do with the passage in Mark. Mark is just listing out the disciples. Luke is just telling the story of passing through Samaria. Nothing to do with one another. And yet Luke is answering the question that Mark raises. It's fascinating. Okay, um, we'll skip the second one. Let's look at, uh, um, yeah, let's look at Herod and his servants. This is an interesting one. Um, king Herod is kind of a nasty piece of business. Um, this is the younger King Herod, not Herod the Great, but to one of his sons. And he's troubled by two people throughout his lifetime. He really doesn't like John the Baptist, and he really doesn't like Jesus. Both of them give him problems. 
So Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2, we have this fascinating little note. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So he's kind of like, oh, man, John's come back from the grave to haunt me more. All right, Herod's really upset about this, okay? Now, again, did you catch it? Who does Herod say this to? His attendants, which is probably like servants, probably slaves, okay? Now, you should be asking a question. Most of you aren't asking this question because you're too good, right? You're like, well, it's God's word. Of course they could know. But you should be asking the question, how on earth does Matthew know what Herod is saying to his servants? Haven't you ever wondered that? It's a really good question. Hmm. Well, you can read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. You will not find an answer to it. You will find the answer in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Again, a totally unrelated passage. Luke is describing the people traveling with Jesus, and he lists some women. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. You catch that, right? Amongst the women who are following Jesus is this woman named Joanna. And she's the wife of Cusa. And who is Cusa? The manager of Herod's household. Ah, so how does Matthew know what Herod is saying to his attendants? There's a spy. They've got a spy in the household of Herod. It's Cusa. And Cusa's passing along to Joanna, who's passing along to the group. Isn't that cool? Like, and again, sometimes we're, we're too pious, right? We don't want to ask the question, well, how would Matthew know this? No, it's a good question to ask. So we just have to keep looking in the Gospels to find out how is it that Matthew knew this. And then when you find out that it's not Matthew who tells us how Matthew knew this, but it's Luke who tells us how Matthew knew this, they're like, ah, there's a way the Gospels just fit together so precisely in a way that you can't make up that establishes their reliability. All right, one last one we'll look at. Oh, dear, I'm already over time. Okay, we'll skip this one. All right, sorry, but it is fascinating. Okay, they're used to it. We live in a democracy. We could vote. <laughs> I would be skewed. It would be skewed, yeah. Yeah, because nobody would want to say, no, I, I really want you to stop now. Nobody's going to put up their hands to vote for that, right? That would just feel rude. But nonetheless, some of you would be thinking, okay, yeah, Seth would say that. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I will skip the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but it is really fascinating, okay? And let's skip over to letter E, and we'll wrap up really quickly, okay? So internal evidence for the gospel, I think, again, extremely powerful at demonstrating the reliability of the gospels. Letter E is what we call external evidence for the gospels, and this is from the discipline of archaeology. I won't walk through this at all, except to point out that that little place there um, is a place that you're going to go to in Palestine. This is the Pool of Bethesda which for about 150 years, skeptical scholars said, doesn't exist, John's making stuff up. Until they excavated a certain part in Jerusalem, and they found it, and so there's confirmation of the existence of the place that scholars were skeptical of. And what you find is over and over and over again, archaeology is confirming biblical details and biblical narratives. Okay? 
All right, and then letter F is what we call experiential verification of the Gospels. And this is where the rubber meets the road, okay? This is not, as it were, a rational evidence. Rather, this is a personal challenge. The Gospel proclaims to you that Jesus is the Lord of life, that he came, he lived to die as a sacrifice for your sins, that you could be redeemed, and that you could know God personally. Ultimately, you have to give yourself to that story for that story to be borne out to be true in your life. And if you never submit to the story, you will never find it to be true. So the challenge is to seek to experientially verify the truthfulness, the reliability of the Gospels. This is where we are told by Scripture, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think there are excellent reasons to trust the historical reliability of the Gospels, but you can't stop there. The Gospels make a claim upon your life, and the response is to submit your life to the one proclaimed in the Gospels.